Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, sports fans. Coach Nick here, and I just wanted to drop in for a quick second to tell you that this podcast is really gaining popularity. And in order for us to continue growing like this, I'd love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. Plus, I'm always excited to hear feedback and continue to improve our content based on what you want to hear. I know I'm in. Are you? Was George Carl right to criticize Mello and Kenyon Martin for not having fathers while growing up? How do coaches need to communicate with their players now compared to 30 years ago? Do you realize how good Jabari Parker is? The only question left is, say with me, you win? Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast and another edition of our weekly show with Coach Dave Dufour. Dave, uh, we've got a lot to talk about this week as we're moving in towards Christmas. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, all those things. We're allowed to say Merry Christmas now, right? I think we are, yeah. Happy Hanukkah. Thank you. Yeah. It's the same time this year. It's very exciting when they align. Kwanzaa starts on Monday. Wow. Yeah. Well... You know, this is this is, the Armageddon is only uh, it must be near. <laughs> yeah, it's all you know, you, you only have a couple of days that you have to entertain people. That's that's the the bonus for this. Right. Well, we you know Hanukkah, we got eight days. And so that's eight little presents you got to get for the kids. And, uh, you know, and then my son's birthday is the 31st. So it gets muddled. Oh, man. You know, that's when I don't know. How, how old's your son? He's going to be nine. Oh, so he's old enough to know. That his birthday and Christmas are not the same thing. I, I was like, if I had a kid until they're like four or five, I'd just trick them. Right. Just well, no, gift. we were getting the whole New Year's Eve thing was sort of folded in. Oh, those fireworks are for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but then again, he wouldn't stay up that late. But, uh, you know, he's he's pretty, pretty smart. He knows. And we already had his birthday party. So uh, who knows what's going to happen on the actual day? Yeah. So, well, you know, let's, let's talk about some NBA. Uh, you know, we, there's a lot of things to talk about. And, um, you know, what, where do you want to jump off on first? Um, I, you know, I think let's, let's kind of hit on this George Carl thing really quick. Um, just because it's kind of, it's kind of blown up a little bit. Kenyon Martin's Twitter was astounding yesterday and he was really going off. Um, George Carl in, in the things that he said, and if you, for anyone listening that doesn't know, he basically equated some of the personality conflicts that he had with Carmelo and Kenyon Martin uh, related the, the problems that they had relating to the fact that those two grew up without fathers. Of course, that really um, kind of slights their mothers who did a pretty good job raising them. I mean, you know, they are successful people. Um, and, and, you know, for the most part, I, like, I don't think, either one of them ever been any kind of trouble. Um, so I, I don't know where that comes from, but, um, you know, Carmelo's father died when he was two mm-hmm. of cancer. So 
at the very least, it's insensitive. Now, when you read the whole passage, it was actually it was very empathetic. It was you know he was he was actually trying to come up with a reason why he couldn't um, relate to these guys, and he said that the reason was you know they didn't have their dads around, and he had a very sheltered childhood full of you know like his father was very protective, and then when he got to college, his college coach was like a father figure to him, and so he had all of this guidance and and so i get what he was saying but the way he said it was problematic you know it's 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 going to be taken as veiled racism i I don't think george carl is a racist i don't know how you can be in the an nba head coach for 35 years and and be a racist i just don't think that that's a sustainable thing but the way he said it you know he probably just should have not said it in the book (laughs) <laughs> right. I mean, it's funny because when you're in your own bubble, uh, you know, those things do seem reasonable, I imagine, while you're writing them. And then when they get out there, you realize. But, I mean, there's no question. I, 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 I you know, is there a, a, a train of thought that you can sort of follow the idea being, and I, you know, they, he didn't have a, a strong father figure in his life. And so they completely, um, you know, rebelled against what George Carl would have represented as a coach or what he was trying to demand as a coach in his position. And, and uh, you know, I, I suppose that's what he's trying to say. But, um, you know, and, and like, you know, when I was coaching at, at the high school I was when I was an assistant, we would, my, the head coach would talk about that, where we would look at the players that we did have, you know, issues with, with in terms of uh, following rules. And, you know, he would point out sometimes that, yeah, like a lot of the times it's the kids that don't have fathers who tend to, you know, there seem to be some more than enough to look at it as a pattern, but doesn't really excuse anything because your job as a coach is to connect with your players. Right, exactly. Well, you know, here's the thing. I, I grew up in a single parent household. My parents divorced when I was like three. And, but my mom was way harder than my dad would have ever been. So, you know, I was ready coaching when when you know when I got to basketball and and had that coach that was easy it's mm-hmm. like oh I just gotta um you know run this play this way and uh maybe do some suicides fine no problem you know <laughs> the the punishment is running eh, sign me up right and I don't think and I think that is independent of who is raising you uh sure. as far as whether it's a mother or it's a father uh you know you, yeah you can get that whatever he is sort of veiled talking about uh discipline or you know I, I guess it's what he's trying to say but I mean I guess and again the point is is that um it is it's the it's the male figure it's 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 fraught with a lot of things it's going to be it's hard to sort of you know get to the bottom of that especially what's weird to me is that George Carl's offense for instance was very loose Um, and didn't really demand much. And so I kind of have a hard time picturing, you know, scenes where he would be in their faces because he he never never really seemed like that kind of coach anyway. So, like, when you read that passage, is that the impression that you were getting? Was that, like, he was trying to coach the crap out of them and they were simply saying, F you, I'm not going to do that? Yeah, I don't know. I think he was trying to justify why they didn't have more success in Denver. And, you know, like, that's just problematic anyway. Like, it's hard to diagnose these things after the fact. I mean, they didn't have the greatest personnel. That's one problem. Um, But they also didn't play defense. And this was another thing, and I thought Kenyon Martin was fantastic for saying this. Um, In the book, George Carl calls out Carmelo for not being involved in playing defense. Kenyon Martin says, well, George Carl never coached defense. So what do you expect? So, you know, again— 
all of these coach tell all books, man, I, I wish that these guys would just stick to telling funny stories and heartwarming stories and things like that. Because when they get into this stuff where they're criticizing former players, it makes you question. Like, first of all, let's just consider this book, George Carl's retirement from basketball. He's not getting another job after this right. because there's too much. This is like Phil with this posse comment. Like, you may not have meant it that way, but it's going to be taken that way. And you've got to be smarter about this stuff. And, and you know, in Phil's book, he dumped all over Kobe and, of course, then winds up coaching him again. So that's kind of weird. But <laughs> I, I just – I think that your job as a coach is to to foster and build – to build relationships, to foster those relationships, and then to treat those relationships with some some respect and to keep them private because – you know, like your players need to trust you. And if you're going to tell the media this stuff, it, it, like think about how are players going to react to coaches that are coaching them now after all of these coaching tell-all books have come out? Right. You know, if you're a player in your mid-20s, are you going to coach? I mean, with Steve Kerr, maybe it's a little bit different. But but what about a guy like Jason Kidd? Okay. So if you're Jabari Parker – uh, who we're going to talk about at some point today. If you're Jabari Parker, are you going to trust Jason Kidd? Jason Kidd is going to write a tell-all book in 15 years about the time that Jabari Parker, you know, I don't know, stubbed his toe and didn't want to practice or something stupid like that. So I think it's problematic for the NBA and basketball as a whole, not just George Carl in this one particular instance. But this, it was, it's a bad look one way or the other, no well, matter how right. it ends. And, and to your point, and by the way, just just so in case it's, you know, for perspective, you coach in Europe, uh, pros, you coach high school now, I coach high school. And so uh, while it's not the NBA, uh, there is a, same, a, a similar dynamic, believe it or not, a coach and player relationship that goes on throughout these levels. And we've, you know, Phil Jackson's talked about it, too, in a lot of his books, where, you know, the, the players will still need that coaching figure, that information in that direction. They've been trained to have it that way all the way since they were little kids so you know our perspective actually is is valid on this kind of thing and so uh the other thing about george carl is like you said he's not getting another job and he's had health issues so clearly he needs to you know probably to me it sounds like he needs to sell this book uh yeah, he needs well, the money publishers, you know the publishers for sure saw this stuff and they just saw the money printing right you know yeah, and, and he probably is, you know, is looking at that going, you know, I'm going to be around for another 20-some years, whatever it is, and I, you know, maybe in my bank account, you know. And so it's like I, I, I wouldn't want to get in the way of him, um, you know, making money off of his uh, of a book. Uh, but uh, – and he'll have to know that this is going to be a real problem for him and he's going to take a lot of crap and he, either he cares or he doesn't. Um, but, again, the, the point – the, the learning thing for this for other coaches, like you said, is that – um, it's just not, it's not really okay on a, every, um, every level to sort of pull the, oh, you didn't have a father, so you're not coachable card because right. that just sort of says, all right, well, you know, you're just some sort of relic from a time when, you know, we, you know, coaches could paddle, you know, players or whatever. And, um, you know, that we haven't had that situation since the eighties probably. And he did coach in the eighties. I believe he was a head coach in the eighties, yeah. right? Yeah, um, yeah. You know, so that's probably, you know, what he's kind of clung to this whole time when a lot of the younger coaches understand that that dynamic doesn't really work. And you know what? It probably didn't even work back then. You know, it just no. it is what it was, but it wasn't the best way to do it. You know, so back to the relationship with players thing, like I value my relationship with my players more than I value winning a game 
or having a nice offense or any of that stuff. Um, and and the the school that I work for, they actually leverage that that relationship I have with those players to to improve the the kids' grades and their study habits and things like that because they know that those kids, you know, they text me this week. We've been off for finals. Those kids text me almost every day, you mm-hmm. know, because we're friends, right? Like they respect me because I respect them. And I treat them like adults. And I think that one of the problems with the old school coaches in the NBA was that the way that they were coached in college is how they try to coach these adults with money. And that's a problem. You need to like you need to treat them like Steve Kerr, uh, Greg Popovich, the, the guys, Spolstra, the guys that are sticking around for a long time. They don't treat these guys like they're college kids. They treat them like professionals. And so I, I wonder if George Carl has you know this kind of thing i don't know i've never been to one of his practices i've seen him coach he's not he's not a yeller or anything like that but i i wonder if maybe he gets pushed back in practice like if he tries to yell you can't be one way on game day and another another way in practice you got to coach the same way and be consistent and and in particular when you're dealing with adults it just i don't i don't know i don't know what's going on yeah, it's uh, you know, it's an interesting thing, and and it, it, the, like what we said, what we've discovered here is about the 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 necessity to to communicate with your players because you know you, you will hear that refrain, you're not here to be their friend, right? Like you know, you can't coach them like you're their friend. I remember I had an assistant who, oh boy, uh, anyway, it, w- it was not a good situation, and uh, and he tried to pull that out on me as if that's my was my motivation. By the way, my motivation was never like to be friends with the players either. I wanted to create a situation where they all wanted to be part of the program and didn't want to transfer somewhere else, okay? I wanted to give them a situation where they can come in here and that we're going to they're going to improve, it's going to be fun, we're going to win, you know, those are the things. Now, becoming friendly with me probably is tied in with that anyway, you know. Uh, but like when he pulled that out on me, I, you know, it probably should have been the end of our relationship then. And I didn't, and that's another lesson learned. But, um, at any rate, so I think that that's, you know, people, it's a hard thing to tread and it's hard to figure out what it all means to me. My motivation, I think is, it's, it's almost the same, but different in the sense that, um, I wanted, I wanted to create a situation where the kids felt safe. They felt like it's very stable. They'll know every day who I'm going to be and they know they're going to improve. They know I'm trying to get them to improve. And, um, and then, you know, through the course of that, we should have some fun. Yeah, exactly. We're all on the same team at the end of the day. Right. And, and I can't I'm be your team. friend like overnight. I mean, we became friends overnight, but other than that, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, I'm not going to be, you know, that takes a while. You know, I, I'm not instantly going to be friend, like really good friends and love, you know, my players the, over one day. I, you know, it just right. takes time. I want to bond. I want to hear about them. I want to sit, have these. That, that's my favorite thing, by the way. And you see Popovich do it when he like goes, sits the side with one player and they kind of chat about probably wine or whatever they're chatting about. Those are always my absolute favorite moments of coaching. Yeah, I try. I- do my best to make sure I get some one-on-one time with every single kid um, that I coach. And and I try to get them to rotate their seating on the bench so they get to sit next to me and we can talk about things that are happening in the game. And I can kind of get, you know, because I, I use, I try to use every single, every single teachable moment I try to use because I just don't get enough of them. You know, like coaching high school kids is a little different than, than coaching in college or or the pros or whatever, where you have all this time. So um, I just try to maximize all that stuff and, and and to make it the relationship good, which is what it seems, you know, it seems like George Carl has been poor at that. 
You know, I mean, he got fired after winning 57 games. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, I, we can let, let's just talk about that for a second because in yeah. that they were the favored uh, team in that series. They lost to the Warriors, right? Right. Um, and so we broke all those games down. And the biggest issue I had, it wasn't even defense. It was that their their open uh, you know offense that he ran, which is very loose, no structure at all, looks great in mile high when you're in the regular season. But when they needed to get good shots down the stretch in a close game, they got the worst shots of all time, and that you simply couldn't win a playoff game that way. And they you know those four games they lost were I think they probably had control of those games throughout, and then they couldn't hold on to it simply because they end up taking quick you know twenty footers uh, you know in early in the shot clock uh, with no balance on the floor and they come right back down and get scored on so it was very frustrating to, for me to watch that even though I, I tend to like having you know a free form offense but you got to have much more structure to that and you got to be able to have go-to things in the playoffs yeah exactly uh, so uh, a little bit of news that that just broke um, one of the guys on that nugget squad uh, J.R. Smith he's going to be out for 14 weeks uh, after his thumb surgery, which is problematic for the Cavs because they're already shorthanded at the point guard slot. Um, I don't know. The, the, I think that this could be either they're going to have to stop coasting the the guys that are <laughs> you know superstars, or they're going to lose some games um, and, and potentially lose that that first seed to Toronto. Did I have a dream that Kevin Love was hurt? Yeah, he's got a. a a knee issue. I don't think it, I don't know if it's an injury or just like a bother, you know? Um, I haven't seen anything that says he's going to miss significant time. And if I had to guess, I'd say he plays Christmas day. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that is an interesting problem. Now they don't care if they're second in the, in the conference anyway, right? That doesn't really matter to them. Um, and if we do a quick look at the standings, uh, what, do you know what the standings are right now? Uh, here we go. Um, they are, you know, they're, they're a game and a half up. And, uh, and then five games up on the third seed. So, you know, it does feel like more than a quarter of the way through the season that they probably got a decent hold on that, you know, top one or two spots, right? Yeah, they'll probably be the two seed, I would guess. You know, J.R. Smith, while he may not be – he's not their one of their three best players. He is for sure their fourth, and he is kind of – important for what they do you know i mean he he was the key to them winning the finals i mean obviously lebron and Kyrie were the superstars there but um jr smith played some really great defense and he hit some huge shots so they're gonna i mean they're gonna miss his production but also they're already shorthanded yes uh, you know, and, and you know, yeah, right. All those things you said, the shooting is really going to be key because they're so good at that. Now, they're going to they end up having some shooting. I, I've never really honestly been sold about like Dunleavy as a shooter. But, you know, he, he at least somehow they probably have to have that one step closer to him to give that space to the other guys, like in theory, because he's out there. Uh, and then who else is going to get those minutes like Liggins? Yeah, I would assume it's going to be Liggins. Um, and maybe they find more minutes for Felder out there like maybe next to Kyrie but that's weird and too small and they can't defend anybody like they could maybe play that lineup against like Portland Mm -hmm. but they'll get roasted on the defensive end and by the way I'm just kind of you know just for fun I just called it the last three games for the Cavs stats you know how many minutes LeBron has played the last three games 40 each each game each game he's averaging he's 40 leading minutes the league a game. in minutes now he's leading the league in minutes right you, now you want to know how many minutes Kyrie played in the last three games 
40. 40. Oh, <laughs> 39.7. My God. So that's a real interesting problem here because, uh, you know, and they're, they're winning. So it's not like that's not working, but this is going to be a serious problem for them if they continue to grind it out like that. Well, you know, LeBron has been playing for 13 years, right? Like he, he's played longer than Magic. He played played longer than Bird. Um, I think did I don't know how many years Dominique played, but LeBron has played a ton of minutes. I mean, he just passed Moses Malone on the all time scoring list. I don't think people realize because he's only thirty one. Mm-hmm. People don't realize the mileage he has on that body because he never gets hurt, and this is incredible. But mm-hmm. at this point in his career, like he's at like fifty five thousand minutes or something like that, not including playoffs, not including all the Olympic stuff. Yeah, this no, that's guy, at least I think what two and a half, three seasons. I think extra. Yeah, he. I mean, he's been a machine. But you know, eventually, every machine's going to break down. Father Time is undefeated. Right, and not, so, I'm not even saying he's going to get hurt per se, but you can just see there's a lack of bounce. He's not. I mean, his defense, and I was watching a little bit of it recently. Is really he's just, and, and he could. I, we all know he can turn it up and be a lot better. But uh, you know, there's a lot of instances here where he's just sort of not interested. And, uh, you know, and I get it. I, I, I sympathize with the fact that all those minutes are racking up. And he knows how important the regular season is or not. So it, it's, you know, I, I kind of like to have a standard and think that in the, play, in the play, regular season you still should play, you know, hard and, and really do it. But, you know, I, I'm not going to really go off on that necessarily. But the problem is, 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 is if it's going to keep the games closer because of that and he's got to play more minutes because of that, and then at the end of the year he's tired because of all that, more tired, well, then that's a chain of events that you could have connected to him coasting earlier yeah and and i mean yes he's playing he's playing like 39 minutes a night on the season um and he's he's probably coasting through at least 10 of those i mean like you said he calls up the defense when he needs it um but it's still he's out there on the court it's still up and down it's miles on those legs um i i just i don't know It, it it concerns me because he is 13 years in now and and you do need to start taking care of of the machine right um a lot of people they talk about during the 80s and everyone played 82 games and all this stuff but you know they're taking better care of their bodies now and just because they did it 30 years ago doesn't mean it was right you know the right way to go is what we're going toward which is you know trying to get rid of the back-to-backs Limiting minutes, trying to monitoring workload, things like that. I mean, well, I, I will say this: it, even though whether it's right or not, uh, I mean, the comparison is there. Like these guys did it on commercial travel, right? And so, meanwhile, the other people here are saying, "Oh, I'm getting hurt. I can't. I can't do it uh, now." So, I mean, like I, I kind of get that there is that old school comparison there, and I also think that yes, they should stop that, should extend the season, make it longer uh, as far as days, and so there's less back to backs without question. And then for sure, it's great that they have you know private travel and, and cryo chambers and whatever, um, you know. And it's the problem here. Is is that you know LeBron could easily do his two week sabbatical to Miami, you know whatever <laughs> wink, whatever wink. you want to take from that, uh, and then he'll come back as good as new. Um, you know he looks fine. I mean he took off off two feet off like near the dotted line for a dunk and like wasn't going to make it and ended up losing the ball uh, on the way up. But like I think he lost it sort of because he realized it wasn't going to be a dunk. 
Um, yeah. You know, you can just see it there. And, I, and of course, I got so much shit from, you know, everyone saying I'm a hater because all I do is point that out. But but by the way, there is I, I do sort of relish the notion of the underdog. Right. So if the Bucks are playing the Cavs, I'm probably going to sort of get this visceral cheering for the Bucks just because they're young. They're upstart. They're they're not intimidated. It's it's you know, I, I you know, sue me, yeah. I guess, you know. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Um because it's easier to get excited about the new thing. I mean, like, this is where we take LeBron for granted, okay? LeBron, in thir- like, I am at the point with LeBron where if someone wants to argue that he is better than Michael Jordan or has had a better career or whatever you want to do, I'm not going to argue against that. Now, I still think Jordan is has been better, but it is more of a 1A, 1B conversation than it is one and a huge gap and LeBron is two. Like, LeBron has been that good. And, and you know, I, I watched Jordan. I mean, Jordan was my guy, like, when I was a kid. So, of course, I have, like, these, these you know, visions of grandeur with Jordan. Um, and I saw every single big moment Michael Jordan was in. Um, but LeBron has just been that good. But we take him for granted. And this is, you know, like, we could we could go on this huge societal you know, conversation and we could talk about the same reason we took him for granted is why we have Donald Trump as president. Um, if you really want to go dig deep on, in it, the 24 the hour news cycle and it's almost overexposure, right? Like and, and where the the incredible has become mundane with LeBron. You know, we we don't marvel at the fact that this guy is six, nine. He's Carl Malone size and yet he has guard skills I mean, he literally is a five-position player. Um, he he can do everything. The only thing he can't do well is shoot. But he doesn't even have to. And he still scores for his career like 26 or 27 points a game. So um, we just – I think it's overexposure of that. The decision didn't help, but I think it's because people don't have much nuance when it comes to sports. They don't understand that like – these guys are basically indentured servants. They don't have a choice in where they go. They don't have a choice in the direction of the franchise. They don't have a choice in a lot of this stuff. You know, um, Yes, they are compensated very well, but they're not compensated as well as the owners are or the league. So they're still like within that hierarchy, they're still you know, kind of the middle class. And the middle class is just perpetually screwed in every single you – know, no matter how you want to look at each – part of life the middle class is always getting screwed so um yeah that's that's my little rant well to be fair to the owners a little bit here they don't the players don't have the expenses that the owners have absolutely and so you know so that 51 49 split while it's in favor of the owners you know they they have to run stadiums and all that kind of stuff too uh but listen everybody's doing pretty damn well right yeah exactly Um, well this is why we got this new cba so quick because you know the money is coming in and everybody's happy with it and and that's great that's good stuff and they added a lot of stuff to take care of guys when they're not you know it's not the lebrons that need this this money for when they're done you know it's the guys that play three or four years uh you know tear both of their achilles or something like that and then you know hey now i've got to go find a regular job and that they need that little bit of a safety net, right? Like, and it's great that that got taken care of. That's awesome. I, I think that this is like one of the best CBAs in any sport in recent memory. 
Right. And, and then the salary cap itself was revolutionary when they put it in. And it really is, you know, the model now going forward. And I think, uh, you know, I, I wish perhaps the rest of the country and the, our politics could work more like that because there seems to be a common goal, whereas other, you know, regular businesses, you know, will sink our economy to have a positive quarter, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, so there's there's a partnership with the NBA, with the league and the players, there's a partnership, right? The teams and the players, there's a partnership. Whereas with business in America, uh, well, business in general, in the world, their goal is to separate you from your money. Right. So that that's, that's com- they're almost competing with you for your money. Like they want, like Apple wants me to buy a new MacBook Pro, Dell wants me to buy their laptop, and meanwhile, it's like, well, I need to eat, right? So they want to they want to compete with these other things that you want to do. Like Apple wants you to buy a laptop and then buy a movie on iTunes, and the movie theater wants me to come there and watch Rogue One again, like I did this week, right? So, right. Well, yeah. okay. Or the more nefarious version of that is the bank wants you to buy this house so they can post a positive quarter, not giving a shit if the entire world's economy will collapse after that quarter because they got their one number they needed to get. That's, uh, yeah. Or Wells Fargo will start signing people up to credit cards. Uh, you know, hell, Facebook charged me um, a boost of my page at 11.45 in the, uh, at night on my time. Somebody did a post for $180. And I've never spent more than like $10 on a boost of a post on Facebook. Right. And I've had to spend an hour of my time calling them and following up and trying to insist that I never did that and how they, it was my fault. I accidentally pressed the button. And I can assure them with beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm not pressing the buttons to, to, on my Facebook page at 11.45 at night. And yeah. uh, meanwhile, uh, you know, in the context of like what Wells Fargo did, and, and yeah. she tells me, we get these calls all the time. Well, you got to start to wonder, you know, if Facebook has the same pressures that Wells Fargo does, are they just starting to, you know, charge people boosts and without and then proclaiming that they're, you know, uh, accidental that you did it? I don't know. And just just hoping it slips through the cracks. Yeah. You know. Oh, and by the like, way, it, it was going to slip through the cracks. Some random way I just happened to wander on to my analytics for the boost, which I almost don't do very often. And I saw it like, you know, like in the middle of it. it had already been on for eight, eight days of a 17 day run. It was crazy. Yeah, not to get too deep, too deep into like economic theory, but but the the unsustainability of the three percent profit margins year over year over year over year is an issue, especially as we go. We're like America is like already like an eighty percent or eighty five percent service economy, mm-hmm. so we don't make anything, um, we don't produce anything. It's it's literally service and agriculture. And so we're going to have a real issue going forward. I need to just start a podcast that's just about not basketball um, so that I can get these thoughts out. But, uh, but yeah, we're going to have a real issue. This is where, like, the, looking at these countries that are starting to do the living wage um, is going to be the model for America going forward. And it's probably not – it's probably 10 to 15 years away from having that conversation, but we're getting there. All right. Sorry, we should go back to basketball. Okay, so getting back to basketball and living wages, um, you know, an interesting question came up on Twitter comparing uh, Harrison Barnes and uh, Andrew Wiggins. And as we were talking about it, you know, uh, the the next logical player to throw in there is Jabari Parker. And look at these three guys. And uh, I know you were surprised at how many points Jabari Parker is scoring this year. And I think playing in Milwaukee, a lot of people listening to this will probably be surprised as well. So, uh, you know, what what is so surprising to you that he's up to 22 points a game? 
Yeah, you know, I, I well, he's he's scoring uh what twenty point one. Wiggins is at twenty two, and oh. Harrison's at like twenty point four. Yeah, I just, I guess I didn't realize. I, I mean, this is gonna sound really nitpicky, but I, I thought he would be in the seventeen to eighteen points a game range. Um, and it's only a difference of two points, but the twenty point mark is kind of like the magic number in the NBA. Like you're a score if you put up twenty points a game, you're a scorer. You know, you are you are getting buckets, and um, the fact that he's shooting as well as he is, you know, he's shooting uh, 48 and a half percent from the field, 38 and a half from three uh, on three attempts a game. So that's legit. Like he's actually shooting threes and he's making them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really impressive. And and you know, I'm gonna say this again here. I've said it on my on Twitter and been lambasted for it, but he looks so much more athletic. I mean, obviously, from a, from a body standpoint, he looks more fit. But the way he moves on the court, um, his quickness uh, off the dribble, and just his explosiveness in general, he dunked in traffic from the from the circle at the free throw line uh, during the week. Just, I mean, he has dunked on so many guys this year. And the big knock on him coming in, remember, he was not an athlete. Right. He was, well, he was Carmelo Anthony as a scorer, but... He just wasn't athletic. Well, here's here's what happens in case people don't recognize, like when you have the ACL tear, you have to just assume that they're going to repair it and it's going to be stronger than it was before. And like, that's not even the issue. But then in the rehab, you end up doing explosive and, and flexibility training that you probably never had done before. And so you're not you're, you're now moving a lot more efficiently and you're loading a lot better to jump and to move. And so, you know, it's kind of like when Steph, after his ankle stuff and he learned to open up his hips, he became a different athlete out of that and much more uh, explosive and quick. And it's the same thing here with Jabari Parker. So the knee is no longer the issue. The mental part of the knee is also, I think he's gotten over that. And what you have left is a guy who's now trained in the way that he probably could have and should have done earlier. And we're going to probably see kids younger develop more of these better habits, even if it's just foam rolling to get your, you know, your hips loose and then understanding the correct way to, you know, get your butt back and load, uh, you know, to jump. Uh, so now we're having the benefits of both worlds here, almost as if the knee injury was like a good thing for him. And um, and here we are. When I said 22 points a game, I, I remiss. I'm sorry. I was looking at the per 36 because I want to normalize for to compare. The one thing about this, though, which is amazing to me, is how similar these numbers are between Barnes, Parker, and Wiggins. It's like they're almost identical, really, when you go through the per 36. Yeah, and I think the the big difference is you can account for, you know, Jabari's on a better team than than Barnes and Wiggins. He's mm-hmm. you know he's got uh, Giannis there playing point guard and, and he's super dangerous. I, I just think that if these guys, if you swapped any of these guys, you'd probably get pretty similar production, which is incredible. Um, Harrison Barnes was my pick for most improved player this year, just because I know that that award is generally chosen by like, oh, he, he jumped from nine points a game to 18 points a game. He must be the most improved, where really it's about minutes and opportunity. Um, and I knew Harrison was going to be a higher usage. Uh, this year, he's he's using about 27% of possessions mm-hmm. uh, when he's on the court, which, you know, uh, he was at 35 for a while there. I think that maybe his touches are going down just a little bit. But uh, obviously, Dallas has huge personnel problems, and that can account for a lot of the issues that he's having as far as, you know, when you're comparing the numbers with Jabari. But well, I have an issue here in what you said. Uh-oh. 
Now, you know, let's look at Milwaukee for a second because you said that he's on a better team. Yeah. Right now they're 13 and 14, losing record, ninth in the conference in the, in the East. And, you know, look at the guys who are top, playing the top minutes. You got Giannis and Jabari, the top two guys playing the top two minutes players. Then after that, you got Tony Snell, Matthew Delavadova, Malcolm Brogdon, John Henson. I mean, you know, well, that's Brock- not like. That's not like world killers. Right now, you want to compare that to the Minnesota? Okay, but they're having a better year, I should say. Okay. Right? Like, they're more competitive. The Bucks have been more competitive this year. And part of that is because Giannis is maybe a top 10 player now. Yeah. And and Carl Anthony Towns, the, the hype for him has outweighed what his impact has been on the court. His numbers look great. But his impact has not been great. His defense has been bad. Okay. And so that's a big issue with, with Wiggins. And I think that, you know, a lot of – and now his shooting has been much improved this year. Um, shooting 70, 30, 37% from three. Um, and his free throw rate, I mean, he's shooting six and a half free throws a game. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, again, the poor defense is is part of why, like, his, his BPM – I mean, his – his uh, defensive box plus minus is negative three point one. That's not all him, right? No, I mean you know because there's an effort issue with him sometimes, and I got to go through it more this year because I used to see it a lot last year where he'd miss a shot and he'd hang his head, or the other t- the team would miss a shot. He kind of jogged down, hanging his head. Really bad body language, which you know you, it's not necessarily just the, the kumbaya notion. It's it is you're not engaged, and then when you have to play defense, now you're not ready, and you don't. It's kind of like let those things bother you, whatever it is. Um, and there's no question that that's a, a team wide issue uh, with the with the uh, Timberwolves, which is really just bizarre. And if it's it's a troubling sign if Thibodeau can't get in there, and defense is usually the easier thing to teach and kind of install. We saw that when he first took over in Chicago, he was able to really quickly get that up and running. Um, you know, if he has that much trouble and it continues throughout the rest of this year, uh, it, it, that's a problem. Yeah. Well, this is the, the body language thing is part of why I'm higher on Levine than I am on Wiggins. And I think of those two, Levine is more untouchable than Wiggins. As I think Wiggins, they, I think they're more likely to trade Wiggins than Levine. Levine has a scorer's mentality. Mm-hmm. He doesn't. It's kind of like Russell Westbrook. How can Russ keep shooting all these bad shots? Because he doesn't remember the bad shots he took before. He's only thinking about that next shot. And so Levine has kind of got that that little whatever that gene is that allows you to do that. He's got that. Well, uh, also look at it this way, real quick. Um, Levine and Russ were both sort of un, slightly unheralded coming out of high school. And uh, made, I mean, you know, made their marks early in their college careers, and and had that chip on their shoulder. Well, Wiggins has been anointed for a long time, and has had that pressure on him. And we've seen that in the past uh, of kids who haven't even made it as far as Wiggins, who have kind of uh, struggled with that weight and uh, have not been able to translate that into a ferociousness that will get them over the top. I mean, listen, the fact that he is like he is, and he's probably just a nice, quiet kid, and he's you know scoring twenty a game is great. Twenty two a game. You know, it's like hard to criticize the guy. But uh, defensively, uh, you know, if you don't have that chip on your shoulder and you want to, like, ride, get up in those faces and prove to everybody that you belong, then you're going to have your lunch handed to you every night, and, uh, and that's going to hurt the team as well. Well, it's funny that we're comparing him. One of the guys we're comparing him to is Harrison Barnes, who's almost the same. Like, these guys had a very similar path to the NBA. Uh, 
heralded in high school. I mean, Harrison Barnes, the, the Black Falcon, that, that was a high school thing, right? <laughs> like that whole thing. Like he was thinking about his brand in high school. And then he had kind of a – now he stayed in college longer, but he had this weird college career, um, was, was still a lottery pick. Of course, Wiggins was the number one pick. Um, but uh, kind of up and down in, in Golden State, of course, what they were asking him to do, he didn't have to do very much. And now is starting to come around uh, now that he's getting more opportunities. With Wiggins, the, you just he's got all the tools to be a, like the best defender in the league. He's fast. He is uh, very agile. He can jump out of the gym. He's got long arms. And he's smart. Like you, he knows what he's supposed to do. It is just really strange. And this was why everyone was so high on the Timberwolves coming into the season is because of his athleticism. You've got Ricky Rubio, who is already a really good defender at the point guard. And then Carl uh, Anthony Towns, who's, you know, people were saying that he was going to be in the top three for MVP voting this year. And so, uh, yeah, they've regressed defensively. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, we've talked about this before. I, I think it's time for Tom Thibodeau to, to readdress his scheme instead of trying to force these guys into it. Find something that works. Yeah, I guess. I mean, you know, he's a, a pretty strict no-middle defense guy, for instance, in, in ice and everything like that. And I went to the UCLA game on Monday, and they don't they play like pack line and a lot like sort of force middle. And it, I, I was squirming in my seat watching it. I mean, we had like great seats and watching real close. And it's like I can't I can't fathom like that way of defense, especially in the NBA. And Western Michigan was like hurting them that way. They were getting all these offensive rebounds, or they were collapsing the defense on the on the middle penetration. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if the scheme uh, – I'm going to have to take a really deep dive. That's, I lament that I haven't done a Bucks bro- breakdown, and I really haven't done a, a Wolves breakdown either on their defense, and I need to uh, because I suspect that's what we're going to see is that they're letting a lot of the middle penetration and uh, it's collapsing everything. And then so the, the solution to me would have been, no, just make him do it better, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. because – you know, that shouldn't be hard. You should be able to, as a professional, master that notion of how to position your feet. Now, it's possible they're still just stuck in the ways of Sam Mitchell. I wouldn't be surprised if Sam Mitchell coached it forcing middle. Force him to the big man. That's where the big man can help you, right? Well, you know, that's that's when you had Kareem or somebody, okay. But um, nowadays, and with the way people finish, uh, you're just going to get the big man in foul trouble. Yeah, and Carl Anthony Towns, uh, he uh, commits a lot of uh, goaltending violations. So, oh, he does. Probably. Okay, yeah, good stat there. Yeah, he he does. He I, I see him do it a lot. He actually gets away with a few too. So, I mean, I guess. <laughs> and but you know what? I don't know. Random, talking about random stats, that reminds me, we need to get rid of the free throw line rebound. What do you mean? Uh, when you're shooting a free throw and you're the defensive player. Like, that's what you get separated out. I, I, I feel like some of these guys are getting two or three of those a game, and now we're saying, oh, look, he's averaging 12 rebounds a game. I don't know. I feel like we need to separate those out. Yeah, you know, that's a good idea. I had, had never really thought about that. It's kind of a freebie. I mean, it's the rate is like 95%. As a matter of fact, I don't even send my bigs. I send in guards because I think that they're better, like they're a little sneakier, and they're more likely to get them. But also I want my bigs already back on defense. Yeah. I mean, we used to have a thing where we would press where I have a guy. Actually, when we were shooting free throws, if you can follow this, I put my most athletic guy, if he wasn't shooting it, at the top of the key. 
and then I would have my like two guards down there, and I would have my the athletic guy time it so that as the ball is hitting the rim, he's already like full sprint, and he can either try and get a tip, and if he didn't get the tip, boom, we were double teaming him with that guy and one of my guards, whatever on that whatever side, and then into a press, and it was really cool, and and it, and it worked. I just you know the only thing I had to do was tell the referees before the game, like just so you know we're timing that, so you know if he is, if he's yeah. too early, call it, but you know that's what we're doing. And uh, and we didn't we rarely had that called. In fact, I didn't do that uh, after my first year, and I probably should have kept doing that. I'm stealing that. What's that? Stealing. Stealing. Do you have a guy who's athletic like that? I do absolutely. I'm totally stealing that. Okay, you know it's like that Michael Jordan tip dunk that he'd get on the free throw, and we do it. We literally had it every time. It was really fun. Um, Yeah. And by the way, another reason why you should, you know, take notes for every practice and keep them somewhere because, you know, that stuff you kind of forget. All of a sudden the next season starts and you don't put something in that you did and you don't realize it. I've actually been having lunch a little bit with some of my ex-players from back in 2000 because we ran a triangle back then better than we did it when I did it the last three years. And I, I kind of wanted to pick their brain to remind myself, like, how did we teach it then that was different? Because uh, clearly we did. Yeah, well, you know, we need we needed to do uh, a... Uh the revamp triangle tutorial. You know, I filmed a lot of it, by the way, and uh, having then seen some of the Warriors practices and how they do it, I realized I kind of want to add even more or refilm it or something. But uh, for sure, uh, you know, coming up before the, the summer, I'm going to have that done. And if you got to come to LA to help me finish it, let's do it. I'm in. I'm all in on that. You know what? Hey, while we're talking about the triangle, you know, I got into an interesting conversation on Twitter about the triangle um, because people don't realize. Every single team runs elements of the triangle, right? Well, it's not my fault they don't realize it. It's just <laughs> the weirdest thing, man, that, that people – like everyone runs everything. Like the good teams run everything. The Spurs, they run triangle. They run horns. They run motion. Like they do everything, pick and roll, everything. It's the bad teams that don't run stuff. And that the, the thing is when Phil got to New York and he wanted them to run the triangle, it was because they weren't running anything. Um, under Woodson, they were running. Not it was all pick and roll. Okay, and and ISO, right? It was it was give Mello the ball on the wing, let him jab step seven times, and take a shot. Right, and that was it. So it made sense that he was, it, and he even said this. He was like, I just want a system in place, and the triangle is the system he knew. Right. So you know, yeah, it, I mean, I, and I have to do this video. I'm going to take a, do a video soon on the Knicks. Just showing you um, their triangle offense sets. You know, they only yeah. do it like five, six times a game. So I might take you know twenty or thirty of them to show you the shots they're getting out of it because they're terrific, and you know for the most part. And so it's like, and then if other teams are running elements of it, um, it's not like you know because then the argument goes, well, they're not running the pure triangle, so it doesn't really count. But like the bottom line is, if you want to trash the triangle, well, then you can't sort of separate and say, well, just that element is good or that element is good. Oh, that that's that part's fine, but the whole thing is bad. You can't say that. Yeah, well, you know the, the triangle. The reason I like the triangle is because it gets guys used to cutting on cutting back door on the overplay. That that's my favorite part of it. Is, is kind of the blind pig, right? Mm-hmm. On the overplay, trying to make the pass to the wing or whatever, you can you get these guys used to beating the back, beating the defender back door. And so the layups that come out of the triangle, like you know, like Jordan was all about the mid range, right? Like, mm-hmm. but Jordan was amazing at the mid range, so of course that's that's what you're going to see there. But people forget about all the back door cuts to Scotty, and I mean Rodman on the back door cuts even. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just I don't know. Uh, Horace Grant like got paid because he was good at at making a cut. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, he, then he also developed that really good mid-range, and too, mid-range. and just about yeah. beat the Bulls with the Magic that one year yeah. with just on that alone. Uh, you know, to me, the triangle is simply an offense that, that generates open shots. Now, yeah. if you're the mid-range guy, it's going to generate open shots for you in the mid-range. If you're a three-point shooter, it's going to, you know, Steve Kerr never had problems getting three-point shots when he, you know, out of the offense. Uh, and so that's really what I would I would stress. And I think the, the other best part about it are a couple different things. There's, a, there's always a progression to something else. There isn't just like we try flop, you didn't get a shot, okay, pick and roll on top and go hope for the best. No, there is always a progression right into that. When I would coach it, um, I would say I never, ever want to see someone like dribble the ball from the wing to the top, hold up a, a finger and call a play. No, it's one pass and bam, you're right back into one of your attacks based on where the ball is. And that, that's huge because the shot clock is running down and, you know, you can generate four or five extra good shots a game that way. And that could be the difference. You know, that's one of the hardest things to teach uh, for younger players is getting into the offense from wherever you are. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Everyone wants to their natural reaction is and this. We're going way in the weeds on coaching here, but their natural reaction is, oh, man, I've got to get to my spot. Well, your spot is wherever you are. And, you know, I try to get I try to get a pistol action started before my guys even hit half court. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nice. it's like it's like the, the guys on the wing. Let's let's get into it. You know, why are you why are you waiting? Um, this is where like my my D'Antoni love comes from because D'Antoni, you know, everyone the seven seconds or less is obviously everyone knows that. But what you don't realize is that in that seven seconds, they're running three actions. Yeah, you know, there's there's so much. It's not like just dribble down and pull up a jumper. No, they're running stuff and they're just getting into everything quick. Um, and this is the Spurs. You know, when they had all their motion stuff a couple years ago, you know, they would push the ball up. They wouldn't, you know, Tony Parker didn't dribble it up every time. He was, they were looking ahead to pass the ball up. And, you know, Danny Green would have it a lot. But normally when Danny Green has it, you wind up in a hammer, uh, you know, set or something like that. So, yeah, I just, I just wish more, more people that watch the NBA would, would realize, hey, the triangle, like, it's not this old, outdated thing. And, I get that now you can kind of zone up against the triangle, but this triangle still works against the zone. Otherwise, the Warriors wouldn't have won the title two years ago and 73 games last year because, you know, they, they run a good 5% to 10% of their stuff is triangle stuff. Oh, it's more than that for sure. I you mean, think? every time they enter the ball in the low post and split the elbow, that's triangle right there. And they do that, uh, you know, half the time almost probably yeah. when you really well, look at Jason it. Well, Jason Kidd runs all of his stuff that way. Yeah, and exactly. Jason, that's why, yeah, Jason Kidd deserves That's why the Bucks deserve a breakdown. Uh, the, other, the last thing about the triangle also, and I'm writing a book about this. I'm going to write a book about offense and then with a triangle bent. But uh, the idea that whatever offense you run needs to be able to let your players get in a position where they're running before they catch the ball, sprinting from across the floor 10, 15 feet at a time. And, you know, you think of pinch post when you throw the ball and now you're sprinting before they hand it off to you or the potential for the handoff or any kind of handoffs themselves, dribble handoffs. Uh, you're, you're running and then catching. And I, th- I think that's what Tex Winter understood was that you needed to get as many of those uh, uh, opportunities as you can out of your half-court offense. And that's the problem, I think, with the crappy teams because the crappy teams run offense. They run their sets. But, um, but I would think that most of those teams, uh, the mileage that they run on the, in the half-court on the offensive end is low. They're simply standing around a lot. They have two or three guys who aren't cutting around very much uh, in, in, in efforts to simplify it or whatever, and they just make it worse. That's why the Nets are sort of a revelation because they are, they are getting, they're, they're playing that way. They're hoping they get hot, and if they do, they stay in the game a lot longer than they would at normally, and, um, and that's the recipe right there. 
Yeah, well, we saw that against the Warriors. Yeah, yesterday, and they I mean, weren't even like on fire, right? From three, were they? No, they they actually were just they were just playing playing good defense, and they were just making open shots when they were available. And and you know, it's smart. I mean, I, I try to I try to teach offense in that every move that you make, you're just trying to gain a half a second, right? And if you if you can pile up enough of these cuts and screens and things like that, you wind up with like a second, right? If you get a second window, that's that's a wide open shot. And, you know, the, the key is you just got to keep the defense moving and falling behind and falling behind and falling behind. And that's where, like you said, sprinting into your, you know, into your cuts and things like that makes such a huge difference. And in the NBA, you often see a lot of people, they just walk in, walking through the motions of the offense till the playoffs, and then you see guys really getting after it. Yeah. Well, you know, those those teams don't make the playoffs, so we don't get to see <laughs> that true. either. Uh, so anyhow, well, I mean, I think we got a lot of things covered here, don't, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think we, we kind of covered a wide swath of things, yes. Yeah, I mean, and certainly if you're a coach out there, I think there's some really great uh, you know nuggets out there that we threw out there for sure and uh, and some good analysis on the, uh, on the, uh, the uh, Wiggins and stuff. So good stuff. Dave, as always, another uh, good show. And um, I don't know. Anything else you want to leave uh, for us before we end? Uh, Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. Um, I hope everybody checks out of the Internet for the weekend. I mean, I know that means that they might not listen to this podcast until next week. But, uh, you know, enjoy time with your family and try to just relax and enjoy the games on Sunday because it's actually five decent games. Yeah, we got the rematch early. Yeah, that's going to be good. Uh, Knicks Celtics is going to be fun, dare I say. You know, the Knicks <laughs> have been okay, and the Celtics are finally healthy. Yeah. Uh, so you it's know, it's definitely a good barometer game for the Knicks. Yeah, the only the only issue is Porzingis uh, with the bruised knee. I'm hoping that he's he's able to play. Me too. Absolutely, that would be a bummer if he didn't play. That would be a Chris a, a scrooged uh, moment for us. So. Well, yes. thanks for coming on the show, Dave. As always, we will see you again uh, next week. We're going to do a post-game show. When do we decide to do that? Thursday? Thursday. Okay. Thursday so we might even do the early game. Is that what we were thinking? Yeah, I think so. It's Boston-Cleveland. I think that's a little more interesting than the Lakers-Mavericks. Yeah, for sure. And so people might not turn over to Lakers-Mavericks and TNT. So we'll, maybe we'll capture some of that earlier audience on the East Coast. So stay tuned for that. Lots more coming up. And uh, don't forget, sports fans, at Beatball Breakdown, we're not a channel. We're a conversation. Are you in? Are you in, Dave? Yes, I am.